0: Andrew Womack Ministries presents Part 1 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is our life for today, tape number 108. And today we begin our teaching through the book of Ephesians. This begins on page 1091 of our study Bible. Before we actually get into the text, let me just give a little bit of background here on the book of Ephesians. This is a really powerful book, and sometimes we take some of the things presented here as, uh, you know, we take them for granted because they have become so well accepted in the church age. But Paul makes special mention of the things that he's saying here as being mysteries which were previously unknown. In Ephesians chapter 3, he reveals about how that the things he was saying were revealed to him by the revelation of God. Previously, they were mysteries. And so these things, this was a very important book that was being shared here because the revelation, these mysteries that were being explained had to do with the Jews and the Gentiles both being accepted in one body in Christ. One of the dominant themes that we'll be dealing with is that uh, Ephesians presents everything is already having been done. In other words, that we are already complete in Christ. And he prays that they would just get a revelation of what they've already got. That's one of the main points that Paul is making in this book. And so some things that now are basically pretty well understood and accepted at the time of the writing of this book, these were revolutionary statements. And even though some people give you know mental assent to this and shake their head and say, oh yes, I know this, I think that really it still takes a revelation of God to have the full impact of these truths that Paul is presenting here. This is a powerful book that uh, really is just, it's awesome. And there's two prayers listed here in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1 and chapter 3, where Paul specifically prayed for revelation knowledge for the readers. And so this book kind of comes with a self-guide. It has these prayers that if you would just pray them and really put faith into what Paul is uh, saying in these prayers, that it'll just open up the revelation of the book of Ephesians to you. And I don't believe that it's limited to what the material is here in Ephesians, but these are prayers that we can pray just for uh, supernatural revelation of any of the great truths of God. And of course, we'll be going into that in more detail The book of Ephesians is basically expounding the doctrine of grace the same way that the book of Romans did, but the book of Romans was kind of like, you know, I call it Paul's masterpiece on the method of salvation. In other words, salvation didn't come by effort, it didn't come by works of the law, but it came by grace. In the book of Ephesians, this book is dealing more with what happens after salvation, what has taken place on the inside of us, our position in Christ, how that we have everything, our inheritance and on and on about these kind of things. So the book of Ephesians is more like how to walk out the Christian life. And the first half of the book, the first three chapters, are dealing with the great spiritual truths, the revelations about what's already taken place, how we're already complete in Him, talking about how the church has become the body of Christ and that Jew and Gentile are both united in one body. And then the last half of the book goes into the very practical aspects about how to walk out your salvation, talking about husband and wife relationship and master and slave relationship, which today would relate to um, employer, employee. It talks about parent-child relationships, just a lot of real practical things about how to walk out the Christian life. In the book to the Galatians, Paul was dealing once again with the subject of grace, but he was harsh, nearly mean in that book, motivated, I believe, by love, but he just pulled no punches. Galatians was harsh. The book of Ephesians is expounding some of the same truths, but it's presenting it in a non confrontive type of way. It's just like expounding some of these great truths. You don't find that same harshness. In a, in a sense, the book of Ephesians is very uplifting. And, of course, the book of Galatians is uplifting if you receive the message. But, I mean, it was written written in a harsh style, I mean, really to counter some strong doctrinal error. You don't see that in the book of Ephesians. In the two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, well, you see that Paul was very specific. He was personal with that letter. He was writing it to the Corinthians, answering specific questions that they had answered uh, he had some complaints about immorality and conduct in the Corinthian church, and he addressed things very personal, used himself as personal examples, etc. You don't find that same style in the book of Ephesians. Again, it's very nonspecific. It's nearly like it's a generic letter. And I've done some study on this, and a lot of people, a lot of scholars, believe that the book of Ephesians was actually intended to be a generic letter or what many people call a circular letter. It was intended to be circulated among all of the churches of Asia. Now, the reason that it would have had Ephesians ascribed to it is because Ephesus is the dominant city where Paul was. He spent over three years there on his third missionary journey. And from Ephesus, the scripture says that the gospel was preached throughout all Asia. So it was not, con- Paul's ministry in, in Ephesus was not confined to that city. I'm sure he went out and did some other things outside of the city, but he specifically sent disciples and the people that he was ministering to out. And so the influence of his ministry in Ephesus actually shook all the way through Asia. And it's very possible that the other churches there. Uh, Paul intended them to circulate this letter to the Ephesians. He even uh, told them to do that in, with the letter to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. In the letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians five seventeen, he told them to circulate these letters. So this was a habit of Paul, and it could be that he actually wrote this in a kind of non-personal manner so that it could minister to different bodies of believers. And he might have just addressed it to the Ephesians because that was the dominant place he ministered. It was the dominant city. It was the hub of all of the activity in that area. And so that would not really be inaccurate for him to call it the letter to the Ephesians, even though he may have intended for it to be circulated. So if that was his intent, which I don't know that we can say that emphatically, he did that with some other letters well then, it would explain some of this impersonal style. In a way, he wrote this kind of like a book is written, where it's not got a specific audience, but rather it's just available to anybody in your expounding truth. It also is speculated by some people that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul there told the Colossians to take the letter that he had written the church at Laodicea and to read that letter, and then also to share the letter he was giving the Colossians with the church at Laodicea. And some people have speculated about this because, of course, we don't have a letter that was addressed to the church at Laodicea. But some people have speculated that it is this book to the Ephesians and that that was to be circulated all through Asia, even down into Laodicea. And that, that might be the letter that Paul was referring to in Colossians 4.16. Again, I don't know that that could be proven, but it's possible. Uh, some of the things that would add some weight to that argument are that the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians are very, very similar. They're nearly like a twin set of letters. They are the most similar of any of Paul's writings. You could nearly go through and outline Colossians and Ephesians and see that they fall into similar outlines. You'll notice in my introduction to Ephesians, I've written down in just the first couple of chapters just a few things that uh, Ephesians and Colossians are very, very similar in they start with prayers they talk about what has already taken place on the inside of us again i think you could divide the book into halves and the first half dealing with the doctrinal truth and things that are realities on the inside of us praying for revelation that we would understand that And then in the second half of the book, both Ephesians and Colossians deal with parent-child relationships, husband-wife relationship, master-slave relationships. It just nearly is like they're a twin book. It would be like a person writing a letter to one group of people and then writing a letter to another group wanting to get the same points across and basically following the same outline, just maybe saying it in a few different words. So when you see this similarity... It would make sense why Paul would want the Colossians to read the letter to what you know could be the Ephesians. He called it in Colossians 4.16, the letter to the Laodiceans. But if they read these letters, they were so similar they were making the same point, points, and yet they did have differences. There were some different things included in it. It would just help the understanding. It would just take the same points and make them from another point of view, and it would help the readers to understand it, and it would be a very logical thing to do. So anyway, again, I don't know that that can be proven, but um, you know they definitely are very similar books, and I think that uh, that needs to be noted by comparing Colossians and Ephesians. I think we can get a lot more understanding of what Paul is saying. I need to remind you that Paul had been to Ephesus and that entire area there in Asia on two of his missionary journeys. His second one, he just briefly ministered there. That's in Acts chapter 18. It was actually as he was on his way back to Jerusalem and he was urgent to get to Jerusalem so he didn't spend much time in Ephesus. And then in Acts chapter 20, Paul went back there on his third missionary journey and he ministered in Ephesus for three years, which is the longest period of time recorded in any one place at any one stretch of time. And so Paul, this is probably his dominant Ministry trip as far as staying in a place, planning himself, and really making an impact, some of the secular history about the book of Ephesus says that there could have been as many as a hundred thousand people in the church at Ephesus, and Timothy was ordained the first elder over the first bishop over the church at Ephesus. That's in the subscript on second timothy four twenty two and uh Timothy. Here was possibly the elder that was referred to in Revelation chapter 2 where it talked about the angel of the church at Ephesus which was talking about the pastor of the church at Ephesus and it rebuked him for leaving his first love. Now we don't know if that was talking about Timothy but we know that Timothy was the first bishop that was appointed at Ephesus and if the time frame of Revelation was such it's possible that this could have been a personal word to Timothy giving us a little insight into about maybe some of his later years and that he had fallen away again it's possible that this was another person but that book of revelation the first minister that was spoken about in revelation chapter 2 verse 1 that was the pastor or the angel of the church at Ephesus so Paul spent 3 years ministering there some of the notable things that Paul did in Ephesus are that uh, this is where in Acts chapter 19 he found the disciples of John the Baptist and he ministered unto them, ministered the Holy Ghost unto them and uh, water baptized them. Also Paul preached boldly in the synagogue so much so that the Jews finally split over him and they spoke evil of the way and so he separated the disciples of Jesus, the one who had converted from Judaism to Christianity and he disputed in the school of Tyrannus, and uh... anyway we've got information about that over in acts chapter nineteen that was verses eight through ten it was also in acts chapter nineteen verses eleven through twelve that it says that special miracles were wrought by the hands of paul so that he could pass handkerchiefs and aprons from his body and as they came in contact with sick or demon possessed people the demons departed the sicknesses left etc There were some very miraculous things. This is where the seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, tried to cast some uh, spirits out of a demon-possessed man, and they uh, called on the name of Jesus whom Paul preached. And the spirits, the demonic spirits, said, We know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? Well, that was here in Ephesus. And also, this is where the people brought together all of their magic books and all of these things and burnt them. And, of course, there was many, many thousands of dollars here. So there were some real conversions took place. A dramatic revival took place in Ephesus. Also, Paul uh, called the Ephesus leaders together and warned them in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts He met with them. It was one of the first pastor's meetings. He gave them some instructions and some prophecy about how that in the latter days, wolves would come in and destroy the flock. Even some of these elders themselves would turn out to be wolves in sheep clothing. And so, anyway, there's a lot of information about Ephesus, and, of course, Paul, once again, ministered in some of the other areas of Asia around Ephesus, and those things could be added to this. That's the background of this book. Paul was always the undisputed author of this book. I don't think there's really been a challenge to that. There was twice in this book itself that Paul mentioned himself as being the author, so there shouldn't be any real criticism of that. I have a footnote on um the city of Ephesus at Acts chapter 18, verse 16. And if you would like more information, you could go back into that. It was a real major hub, center of all of Asia. It's where the goddess Diana was worshipped. They had a temple to her that was considered one of the wonders of the world. This is where they drug, drug Paul into the amphitheater, and were going to kill him and do some other things. And So anyway, there's a lot of information about the city of Ephesus, if you'd like to look that up. The date and place of writing, if you follow the dating that I've already used uh, previously, and you can look at some footnotes over in the book of Acts, chapter um, 18, verses 22 and 23. I've got footnote 1 and 2 there. And basically, if you follow that dating, which different people vary, you know, one or t- year or two years on this, but it's in the general category. If you follow the dating for the second and the third missionary trip, Well, uh, everybody agrees that the letter to Ephesus was written while Paul was in prison. He mentions it and talks about being a prisoner of the Lord. He was in prison a number of times, but specifically when he was arrested in Jerusalem, he spent two years imprisoned by Festus and Felix. And then he was shipped off to Rome. He was on that long voyage all the way from uh, Israel to Rome, and it was even lengthened more by the fact that they had a storm come up and a shipwreck, and and he was marooned on the island of Melita for a while. And so if you put all of this together, most people believe that it was during the Roman imprisonment that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And if that's true, then if you take the two years he spent there in jail in uh, Caesarea, and then the length of the voyage and all of these things, well, then that means you'd have to add three years to the close of his last missionary journey before he got to Rome and could have written this book. So if you add all of this up, most people speculate that A.D. 61 is about the earliest that Paul could have written the book to the Ephesians. Some people speculate it was even as late as A.D. 64. And again, he spent two years in prison In Rome. That's in Acts chapter 28, verse 30, it says that. So probably it's somewhere between AD 61, AD 64, probably more around AD 62. The actual letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, verses 1 and 2 are an introduction that Paul gave to the saints at Ephesus. And it says in verse 1 Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I could spend a lot of time going into each individual word on this, but I want to kind of skip through this introduction fairly quickly. Some of this is a repeat of things that we've already dealt with in the book of Romans and uh, also in the book of Galatians. But I do want to point out that it says that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God... And Paul normally starts his letters, something similar to this, stating his authority as coming from God, which this is a very significant point, and yet it's something that, you know, a lot of times we gloss over, but Paul was not called by man. He didn't call himself. He was called by God and therefore carried the authority and the power that went with that. And we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but Paul, and the same thing is true today of any person put in authority. There are some people who proclaim themselves to be leaders and they put themselves into the ministry. Their mother called them, you know, always wanted a preacher for a son or something like that. I actually went through Vietnam with a chaplain. I was a chaplain's assistant and uh, this chaplain was at the very best a carnal Christian and I am not totally sure that he was even born again. He had virtually no signs of true Christianity in his life, I don't know. But anyway, the point that I'm making is I was talking to him one day and just saying, why are you a chaplain? Because, I mean, there was no commitment to God. There was no seeking of God. There was no studying of the Word. There was just nothing that I equated with Christianity in the guy. And he says, well, I just always wanted to help somebody, and so I thought of either being a preacher or a fireman. And he said, I just chose to be a preacher just because he desired to do something good, and that was his motivation. Well, I tell you, that's not enough. It's not enough to be just a good old boy. And I think that this is part of the problem is that we've got some people that maybe are nice people and they have a desire to help somebody and they think about the ministry or something as a way of doing it, but that's not sufficient. you got to be called of God. And Paul, see, starts with making this point and it adds some authority to what he's saying. And he's just referring back to that. And I believe that basically any time we stand up and minister to people in any way, form, or fashion. Somehow or another, it needs to come across that what you're saying is not, you know, thus saith Andrew Womack, but it's thus saith the Lord. Over in the book of Peter, he says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that's talking about the mouthpiece of God, or the oracle is what they actually called the place in the temple where they kept the Ark of the Covenant and the written word of God, the Ten Commandments, etc. So it says that if anybody speaks, they need to speak as a messenger of God. They need to speak under his authority and under his power. And so this is what Paul is making reference to. He also says in this first verse that he is writing to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And, you know, there's two ways of looking at this. Either you could say that he's writing to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus is broadening the scope so that this could apply to saints anywhere. It wouldn't have to be limited to Ephesus. But it's also possible that he could have been writing to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and this word saint is simply descriptive of any born-again believer. I've already dealt with this prior to that. I won't spend much time on it, but some denominations today actually canonize and make certain people saints and put them in an elite category and they actually pray to these saints and pray through these saints giving them an elite status and that certainly is not true the scripture calls every born again believer a saint the word saint literally means sanctified set apart and we have been sanctified through the blood of jesus and set apart Every Christian, even if they're living in sin, even if they are not what they're supposed to be, is still a saint. They are a called-out one, a separated one through the new birth. And so he's spe- he, this. you could interpret this as he's speaking to the saints, the born-again people in Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, describing even a smaller select group among the saints. In other words, in every church group, there is more than just the born-again believers, but then there's the core group that actually carries the load. And, you know, I've seen this. I've pastored three churches myself, and, of course, I go into churches every single month, ministering sometimes three or four times a month, and I see a lot of different church bodies. And I would say that out of my experience that probably 20% of the church congregation actually does, you know, uh, 80% worth of the work and of the tithing, and of the giving, and, and really it's like this core group of about 20%, anywhere from 10 to 20% is all that you can really count on. I've actually heard some people like Bob Yandian refer to the nod to God crowd, which is your Sunday morning crowd, and then the others are that come the rest of the time are the faithful ones that actually carry the load, that actually bring the people in and do the work of the ministry, etc. And so I think whether this is uh, actually talking about this smaller group of the inner circle, the ones who are actually faithful and carrying the load, I don't know if that's what this is referring to or not, but that is a truth that in every uh, church group or every assembly of believers, there are some that are kind of on the fringe. And that does not mean that they aren't born again, and it doesn't mean that they don't love God. But for whatever reason, they just aren't given over to promoting the gospel, supporting the church, and doing the things that they need to do the way that they should. And you'll find this in every single group. And so I don't know if that's exactly what this is talking about, but I can I can just nearly guarantee you that that's the way it was at Ephesus. Maybe the percentages were different 2,000 years ago, and there was a greater degree of commitment. But I have never seen any group where you find every single person just totally committed and sold out. If we were to do that, I think that we would see probably the most powerful church we'd see a revival in whatever city that took place in point out that when it says and to the faithful in christ jesus that this is a terminology that's used consistently in the new testament right here in ephesians it's going to be used quite a bit and it's basically just referring to our union a vital union that we have with christ i think that we could insert in there that you are faithful through christ jesus It's only in Christ or through Christ or in union with him that we can be saints or that we can be faithful or anything else. You know, this is kind of like the way you talk about a fish in the sea or, you know, a branch in the vine or any of these kind of things. And I really like that description of a fish in the sea. Like if you were talking about of all the fish in the sea, this is the best or the biggest or this is one of a kind or something. When you're describing that, you're talking about kind of a position a relationship that that fish has to the sea. I mean, it cannot exist outside of that sea unless, you know, somehow or another you were to put it in an aquarium. But, I mean, you have to replicate the situation that is there in that sea. There, Its life is dependent upon the sea. It's dependent upon that water. And in the same way, see, we have a union with Christ that all of our life, anything that we are, any good that we will ever amount to or anything that we can ever do, it's all dependent upon that relationship with Christ. And so you'll see this terminology used hundreds of times in the Word of God. Over 130 times in the New Testament, something in Christ, in Him, is used describing our union in the Lord. There's over ten times as many references talking about our being in Christ as there is the references to Christ being in us, which that's a wonderful truth in itself and there's a lot of good things in that. But I tell you, we need to always remember that our life is in Him. Through Him we live and move and have our being. And our absolute dependence upon Him is just as essential as a fish being in the water to be able to survive. I tell you, if we were to look at things that way, it would drastically change our operation, our our activities during the day, I'm sure. In verse 2, he talks about grace and peace coming unto us from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, I've ministered on grace and peace, a lot of different things. Again, I'm trying to skip through some of this, but grace and peace comes as a gift. It is a part of salvation. Grace is multiplied unto us, etc. But over in Second Peter chapter 1, Peter kind of gave another twist to this, and he said that grace and peace is multiplied unto us through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. And so we find that grace and peace are extended to us as a gift through Jesus, but it's going to be multiplied. In other words, the evidence of it, the effect of it in our lives, is going to be increased directly proportional to our knowledge. And I think that's very important. Boy, there's people praying for peace and asking God for peace. But peace doesn't come through prayer. Now, peace could indirectly come through prayer because through prayer, putting your mind upon the Lord and and seeking Him, He could bring Scripture back to your remembrance. He could speak His Word, His will to you. And the end result of that would be an increased peace. But... Technically speaking, you don't get peace by just praying for it. You get peace by keeping your mind stayed upon God. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 says, "...the Lord will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon him, because he trusteth in him." And that links our peace directly to what we think upon. That's exactly what Peter's saying over there in 2 Peter chapter 1, that grace and peace is multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if you want peace ruling in your life, we have to keep our minds stayed upon God. I tell you, the things that are going on around us today are not giving peace. They actually steal peace. They minister stress and fear and turmoil and strife. If you're plugged into the television and if that is dominating your life, I guarantee you there is anger, there's bitterness, there's murder, there's hatred, there's violence, there's sexual things on there that do not minister peace. And we need to get out of this concept of peace just being something that can come upon you and go completely contrary, you know, crossways to the way that you're thinking. And somehow or another, you just live in a realm of peace. It's what you think upon that generates your peace, your level of tranquility, joy, etc. If our minds are stayed upon God, then he'll keep us in perfect peace. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Well, that's powerful. There is so much more that could be said about that, but I have dealt with that a number of times. But this is the way that Paul introduces this letter to the Ephesians. He basically only spent two verses, a very uncharacteristic introduction for him, and he just gets right into the subject matter. In verse 3, He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now, before I go on and finish that sentence, let me just say that Paul right here is beginning to set the tone for basically this entire book. As I said in the introduction part, Uh, you can divide Ephesians kind of into two parts. The first three chapters are describing and giving revelation of what was previously a mystery, talking about our union with Christ, our being in Christ, the mystery of having Christ in us, and then the mystery of the church, how that through Christ... That Jew and Gentile, black and white, bond and free, all of the divisions that separate people are now broken down and we've become one new person in Christ. He describes these kind of things in the first three chapters. And then in the next three chapters, he basically gets into some practical Christian living about how to relate to people, parent-child relationships, etc., But here in this third verse, he begins to say some awesome things. And we could literally take this third verse, sit down, and dissect it for hours, talking about every little part of this. But this is a tremendous statement that actually is so fantastic. It's so beyond our ability to comprehend that most people haven't gotten a grip on this. Most people don't really understand what this third verse is saying. If we could just get hold of this, it would transform our lives. He said that through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You know, there's a number of things here in this verse, but one of them is he puts it into the past tense. He isn't talking about that we can be blessed, that you might be able to obtain a blessing, that through Jesus, if you will pray hard enough and seek hard enough, maybe God will reveal himself to you and he'll begin to bless your life. That is not what he said. But basically, that's the way that most people actually look at receiving from God. Most people look at God is able to bless me, heal me, prosper me, grant me deliverance, restore this relationship, whatever. But they don't see it as already being a done, accomplished fact. And yet this verse, see, puts it into the past tenses. In As a matter of fact, in the... Uh, this phrase, it says, who hath blessed us in the Greek, that's in the aorist tense, which what that means is that this is something that happened at a point of time in the past. In other words, it's an accomplished fact. It is emphatically stating when it says that he hath blessed us. This means he's not going to or he can, but it says he has. It's already been done. He has already blessed us with all spiritual blessings, not some of them, but all of them. Do you know everything that you'll ever need in your life, whether it's just the presence of the Lord, the peace of the Lord, relationship with God, if it's financial prosperity, if it's wisdom, direction, if it's healing for your body, anything that you can need, victory in any area of your life has already been accomplished through what Jesus did at the cross. Well, I wish somehow I could just really get this point across. This is a revelation that God has made in my life, and I don't think I've got the, the totality of it. I don't think that this runs so contrary to the way that everything in the world is that I don't think it's anybody can totally get hold of this, but I can tell you that the little bit that I've grasped it has totally changed my life. Like in the area of healing, it became a revelation to me nearly 20 years ago. That God had already healed me. That he had already done everything about my healing that he was going to do. He had already provided it. He had purchased it. That the healing power of God is already deposited on the inside of me. And I'll be dealing with that more as we get further down in this very chapter in verses 17 and 18 down there. But the healing power of God is already deposited in me, and there's nothing that God has to do. It's a done deal on His part. And the only thing that's left to do to make healing manifest itself in my body is for me to believe it and to draw it out. It's not a matter of God crying out and asking Him to heal me. He's already done His part. His life, His the same power that raised Christ from the dead is already dwelling in me. And if the power that raised Jesus from the dead is in me, then that's sufficient to heal my sickness, to take care of anything that the devil has tried to put upon me. I got a revelation of that. I know that it's a done deal. And I don't have to go and simply ask and then put myself into a passive position waiting on God to heal me. I can literally make healing manifest itself in my body. And I can do this with other people to the degree that they will cooperate and believe with me. And I have seen some dramatic healings uh, from this. And I'm just using that as an illustration. But see, I have gotten a hold of this. It has transformed my life. And as a result, for the last 26 or 27 years, I've never taken an aspirin. I've not had the sickness and the disease that I had prior to that time. Now, I've had Satan fight me. I can tell when the flu or something tries to come upon me, but it'll last an hour or two hours max, whereas it used to last a week. A month or something like that. I've been healed of incurable diseases. I've got doctor's reports back before I was married that showed I had an incurable disease, and then two days later, the same doctor proved that I was healed of it miraculously. And so, what I'm saying is, this revelation has changed my life, and it really works in every area of our life. God's blessed us already with everything. It's already done. But notice it says that there are spiritual blessings in heavenly places. In Christ, and here again is that terminology in Christ that I was talking about just a moment ago. And somebody might say, well, if I've got these things, where are they? They're spiritual. And they're in heavenly places. It's in the spiritual realm. It's a spiritual reality. It's not yet a physical reality. I'll tell you, it's so hard to share some of these things because it's so contrary to To the way most of us think. Most of us are dominated by what we can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. Our five senses. And if we can't see it, taste it, hear it, smell it, or feel it, we think that it doesn't exist. But the truth is, there is a spiritual world that exists that is just as real. Actually, it's more real. It's more stable than the physical world that you see. There are spiritual forces all around you. There are angelic beings. There are demonic powers. The scripture reveals that. I've got a tape. That would go along with this entitled, What to Do When Your Prayers Seem Unanswered. And one of the points that it makes is it talks about this spiritual world that exists at the same time that this physical world exists. And that the spiritual world, what we can do is by faith, we can reach out. It's just like you know being able to reach into another realm and grab things that do exist. Like, for instance, I was talking about our healing. Our healing already exists. The power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead already dwells on the inside of you. If you are born again, if Jesus is in you, then you have the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwelling in you. And by faith, you can reach over and just take those things that are spiritual realities and bring them into the physical realm. But it is imperative that you understand that when you are trying to receive something like healing or prosperity or whatever it is that you're dealing with right now, that you are not going and petitioning God for something that doesn't already exist, something that has yet to be done. Because if you think that way, then it puts you into this passive position of just coming and basically requesting and then waiting on God to see what God is going to do. It is not God's turn to move. God has already blessed us. He's already given us everything. It's our turn to, by faith, believe that and just reach out and bring those things from spiritual realm into the physical realm. Well, that's a powerful truth. You know, it's just like if I was to deposit a million dollars in your checking account. And if I told you that it was there, and I told you I've blessed you with more than you'll ever need, it's there, it's yours, use it. But then, if you started coming back to me, and every time you needed anything, every time you needed a check written, you came back to me and he says, could I please have some money? You know, what would I do? I've already given it to you. And you say, but look, my pockets are empty. You pull your pockets out, there's nothing there. And you say, in the physical, in the natural, it's just not there. Well, you do have that money. It has been deposited in your account, but there is something you have to do. You have to know that it's there. You have to understand how to write a check to make a demand upon that account that is there and how to begin to use and withdraw those things. Now, most of us see, say, well, I could do that. Well, basically, that's all that you have to do in the spiritual realm. You may not have it in your hot little hands. You may not be able to see healing at the moment. Maybe the mirror still reflects that you've got that same problem that you had before. But the truth is, in the spiritual realm, you have already been blessed with the power of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's already within you. It's already there. It's present. And if you could just believe that, then all you have to do is go to the Word and begin to learn how to draw out what is already yours. I tell you, this is a powerful truth. And this basically is what Paul is getting into in the first three chapters of Ephesians right here. He is just beginning to enumerate. And he actually has to pray two prayers, as I've already mentioned here. He prays two prayers for revelation knowledge because this is just too good to be true. I mean, most people are bound by what they see, not by what the Word of God says. And so he's praying that God will give us supernatural sight and ability to see into the spiritual realm and to get a real vision of what is really ours in Christ. This is imperative that you get hold of these truths. I tell you, these kind of things right here have changed my life. They have revolutionized me to recognize that there is more to me than what I can see, taste, hear, smell, or feel. There is a new me. There is power. There is anointing. There is a spiritual me on the inside that has become united with Christ, is identical to him in its power, in its ability, its understanding, faith, etc. And it's just a matter of me drawing these things out. Boy, it will change your attitude if you can understand these things headed to victory but we are coming from victory we are not trying to overcome but we are the overcomers who satan is trying to overcome we aren't fighting a defensive battle or excuse me we aren't fighting an offensive battle trying to go and take from satan certain things we've already received everything through christ and actually what we're doing is fighting the defensive battle to hold on to what is already ours in christ to not go by what we see or feel, but instead go by what God's Word says. And so we're fighting to receive, retain what we've already got, not to go obtain something. If you can get hold of what I said right there and really understand it, I promise you it would transform your life. There's much, much more that could be said, but anyway, we're going to go through this. He just starts kind of enumerating on this in the next few verses, so we'll be amplifying on this. In verse 4, he says, according as. He's talking about being blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This phrase, according as, according to the dictionary, means to the proportion or degree that. In other words, how blessed are we? How how great are these spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Well, they're so great that he begins to describe that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. I mean, this just goes, this is mind-boggling. If you try and understand this with your little peanut brain and figure it out and look in the mirror and see this, you're going to miss what Paul is saying. Paul here is saying that we are so favored by God. We are so blessed by Him. We have so much of an inheritance through God that we were actually chosen in Christ before the world began. Now, that's hard for us to think about because according to man's finite brain, we can only think about things, you know, in time. We can only think about things from our existence on. How could God have dealt with us? How could God have made plans and provision for us before the world began, before there was even a physical human being created? Well, I tell you, I don't know that we can ever totally understand this, but we can accept it. And we can rejoice in it and we can take a lot of comfort in the fact that before you ever existed, God had already made provisions and plans for you. Before your problem ever exists, God already has the supply made. That's how blessed you are. Sometimes we feel like, that, boy, the tragedies, the circumstances that come up in our life, that these things are just brand new and that it's taken us off guard And sometimes we go to God and actually our prayer reveals that sometimes we think that this is taking God off guard, like God, you know, I don't know if you can handle this. Boy, have you heard about this new terrible disease that's going around and the potential damage as if God was caught off guard by this, as if anything was too hard for God? I tell you, it ministers a tremendous amount to me to recognize that I was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. How does something like that happen? Well, here, you know, is the way that I've been able to reconcile this and I'm not sure that this has all the theological implications in it that somebody else would come up with, but I just look at it as before the foundation of the world, before there was a universe or anything else. In John chapter 1, it says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God, speaking of Jesus. Later in that same chapter it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, talking about Jesus. So Jesus is God. Jesus was in existence with God the Father before the creation of the world. And it says, right on down here and in other places, it says that Christ was the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. It says that God knew his plan of salvation before he ever created the heavens and the earth. So through his foreknowledge, God was able to recognize that the human race would enter into sin and rejection and that they would need to be redeemed. And he had already made the plan of sending his son Jesus to this earth, becoming flesh and reconciling mankind back unto God. So God had already done that. And the way that I look at us being chosen before the foundation of the world is God chose Jesus. God looked at Jesus and said, you will fulfill my will you will be able to make the atonement that will bring mankind back in fellowship with me. And God placed his favor. He chose Jesus. And therefore, any of us who choose Jesus, choose to make Jesus our Lord, get to partake of that acceptance that God the Father extended towards Jesus. The love that the Father has towards the Son, we are partakers of that love because we have partaken of Christ. So to me, that's the way that you understand this. God chose Jesus before the foundation of the world. And since I've chosen Jesus and I'm now a part of him, I am in Christ Jesus, as these two previous scriptures have talked about. Therefore, I was also chosen. It's not really the Lord personally choosing me or choosing you before the foundation of the world. He chose his son, and he knew that there would be salvation opened up to the human race. And so, therefore, everyone who chooses to accept Jesus and accept the conditions of repentance and putting their total faith and reliance in Jesus for their salvation, well, then they become a partaker of all of the blessings of Jesus. I think that this is what Paul is trying to convey. He's talking about that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. How much? To what proportion or to the degree of what? Well, to the degree that Jesus is blessed. Everything that he's got, I've also got because I was chosen in him. I am now a part of him. I am in Christ. He is in me. I'm in him. Everything that is true of Jesus is true of me. And again, I make this point that if you were to take the book of Colossians and look at it as a twin, a companion book, and put it together with Ephesians here, you can see some of these same things, especially in the second chapter. It, it prays a, Paul prays a prayer there in the second chapter and talks about us, you know, being in Him, that we would get the revelation of it, that our eyes would be open, that we would see the hope of our calling, all of these things. And he talks about that we are complete in him. The third chapter of Colossians, he talks about that if we are risen with Christ, set our affection on things above in the heavenly places where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. See, all of these things, I believe they're a companion book. This is just talking about some wonderful things here about what we have and who we have through Christ. Fourth verse, it goes on to say that one of these blessings or an amplification, explanation of part of the blessing that we have in heavenly places is that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And of course, I've referred to things like this dozens and dozens of times as we've gone through. Our commentary here, but we are holy not through what we do, but we are holy through Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24 is going to make a real point of that, talking about put on the new man which is created in righteousness and true holiness. We have a holiness that was imputed unto us. Now there is also a holiness that we produce by our actions, and that holiness is essential for relationships with people, relationships with employers, things like that. You must maintain your own physical holiness to really prosper and see things work. But when it comes to our relationship with God, we are holy in His sight as a gift. We have been made holy. We were created in righteousness and true holiness as a gift of God and a work of the Holy Spirit. And so through Christ, we are now holy and without blame. Before Him, boy, this is important. It didn't say without sin. We are without blame. There is none that has not sinned. All of us have come short. But through Jesus, we found redemption, and He's wiped away our sins. And it says before Him. You notice, in the sight of man, uh, there will be none of us that'll ever be without blame. All of us have blown it, and there's always somebody that's going to hold something against you. You know, if you wanted to just search and dig deep enough, there's somebody who's always put out with you, and sometimes it's well-deserved, and it's because of things that we've done. But in the sight of God, it says we are without blame before Him. God doesn't look the way that people look at us. You know, it's different. If I was to look through a piece of red glass, you know, at a picture or at you or at anything else, everything that I see through that red glass would become red. It wouldn't matter what color it was. It would become red because that just, it shades everything. Everything it goes through that filter. Well, see, that's the way that God looks at us. God looks at us through the blood of Jesus. He looks at us through the atonement that Jesus made for us. And he sees us in Christ. And he sees you differently than you see yourself. Now, I'm not saying that he ignores the fact that there's problems and that there's failures in our life. I believe God in his infinite wisdom is able to see that and understand it and to deal with us so that we can improve and correct and get over those things. But as far as God's pleasure, as far as his feelings, his relationship with us, it's not based on personal performance. It's based on who we are in Christ. He sees us through Christ, just like looking through that glass, and he sees you without blame. And holy before him. The sad thing is that most of us don't see ourselves that way. Most of us aren't looking at that new man on the inside of us. We're looking in the mirror. And we're seeing our outer physical person. We're thinking in the soulish realm about the thoughts and the emotions that we have. And most of us perceive that to be the real us. And because of it, all Satan has to do is come and point at something in the mirror. Something in the physical outer realm and show us a failure, an attitude, something that is going on there, and condemn us. And most of us get condemned, and we feel like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. How could you love me? And we get down on ourselves. We lose faith in our ability to ever be used of God and ever be successful and see things come to pass. But see, God isn't looking at you that way. He is looking at you through Jesus. He's looking at you through the love of Jesus, through that atonement, through that sacrifice. And he sees you differently. The scripture says, How can two walk together except they be agreed? You know, how can you really experience what God wants you to experience? All of these spiritual blessings that he's talking about here in the third verse. How can you experience this unless you begin to start being agreed with God? If you would take these scriptures and really meditate on them and begin to start thinking about that, I'm chosen. Before the foundation of the world, I am a partaker of everything that Jesus is. I'm holy. I'm without blame before Him in love. If you would begin to start using those things and changing your image, changing your identity, beginning to see who you are in the Spirit, your union with Christ. Look at yourself the way that God looks at you. And if that's the way you would begin to think about yourself, I promise you it would change your actions. Your actions are nothing but a byproduct of the way you think. If you see yourself as a loser, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You need to see yourself in Christ. And these are some wonderful scriptures talking about what we have. Man, we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world through Jesus. We're a partaker of his calling that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In verse 5, it says, Having predestinated us according to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Boy, these are some awesome things. Paul here is just praising God, talking about what we have, and he's, he's spitting out so much truth, so much power and revelation right here that literally you could take every phrase and just dissect it and spend huge amounts of time on it. In verse 5 here, it talks about being predestinated. That's a word that scares most people. It's become a religious term that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. Literally, it just means to predetermine. There are some things predetermined by God. There are some things that will happen regardless because God has said that this is the way it's going to happen. There are some things that are not up to chance. They are not up to luck. They aren't up to circumstances. There are some things that God is going to make happen. Now, that's what the word predestinated means, but let me say that this has been taken by the religious community, and what I have heard taught about predestination, I believe, is very wrong and very damaging, and that is that religion as a whole, evangelical religion, has taken this and has said that God is absolutely in control of everything that happens in your life. Or, you you know, going back to this word, God has predetermined, predestined everything that's going to happen in your life. And basically they put God as responsible, as the source of every single thing that happens in your life. Now I've referred to this before and again, I could spend an hour and a half or two hours ministering on nothing but predestination. So I'm going to have to move on. I can't spend a lot of time on this. Let me just mention that I've got a lot of scriptures and footnotes that I've already written about this. If you were to turn over to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, I've got uh, footnotes there that talk about foreknowledge and predestination, and they're probably my most detailed notes on that subject. It would go into a lot more uh, detail on this. But God has not predetermined everything in your life. There are some things... That are predetermined, like right here in Ephesians one five he has predetermined predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Now this is not saying that he has predetermined who can be saved and who cannot be saved. There is an abuse of this, and there are some people that teach that there's some people I won't call out certain denominations, but but they are uh there's entire denominations that believe that you are either predestined to be saved or predestined to be damned and that basically you have no choice in the matter. There's some people that just have a disposition towards being a sinner, that God created them that way, and that God has not even offered them salvation. This is what's called hyper-Calvinism, and people will say that God didn't even make a provision for these people. He only died for those who he knew would accept him, etc. Well, that goes contrary to a lot of scriptures, many, many scriptures. Just one real obvious one is over in 1 John chapter 2, And it says, "...these things have I written unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation." That means the atonement or the payment for our sins. "...and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world." Now that's just about as clear as you can get. John there was saying that he's not only for the payment for our sins, the Christian sin, the believer's sin, but also for the sins of the whole world. Of course, John three sixteen. God so loved the world, not the church, but the world, that He gave His only begotten Son. So nobody is predestined to be saved or predestined to be damned. And I know that there's more controversy than what I've really dealt with right there, but I've got footnotes on this. I encourage you to go back and, and look at those. But uh, you are not predestined to be saved or predestined to be damned. But once you get born again, then you are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And this is what it says over in Romans chapter 8. You know, there's only four times in all of Scripture that the word predestinated is used. Now, there are some other times, like Romans chapter 9, that that kind of concept is talked about, but the word predestined or predestinated is only used four times in Scripture. Two of them are in Romans chapter 8, and two of them are right here in Ephesians chapter 1. And if you look at it in each one of these instances it links predestination to God's foreknowledge. For instance, here in Romans chapter 8, let me share that scripture. It says in verse 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That scripture links predestination to foreknowledge. Now what foreknowledge is, that just means that God is able to know in advance things that haven't even happened yet. God, because He is God, is able to see the future. And there are literally thousands of instances of that in Scripture. God is able to call things as if it had already been in the past. He's able to look at it and tell exactly what will happen. That's what His foreknowledge is. And God, through His foreknowledge, has been able to see who would and who would not accept Jesus as their Savior. So He's able to see who will become born again and who will become a part of the body of Christ. And for those people who he foreknew would do that, then he has predestinated those people that they will eventually be conformed to the image of his Son. As much as we will cooperate and renew our mind and operate in faith and believe God, we can see that happen right now in our physical existence. And that's what he talked about in Matthew chapter 6 where he prayed the Lord's Prayer and he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As much as we can believe, we can see God's power manifest here on the earth. But for those who are not believing or those who are struggling or Satan is defeating and deceiving, etc., God has predetermined that if you don't accept it now, someday you are going to be changed into that same image. Over in 1 John chapter 3 It says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That scripture says that when Jesus appears, we will be like him. Now, if we have been released in our faith, and walking in agreement with God, we can be like Him to a large degree right here in this physical life, on the earth, before the Lord comes back. But for every born-again believer, regardless of how much they have or have not grown during their physical life, when the Lord returns and we see Him like He is, in a moment we're going to be changed and we will be like Him. We will have a glorified body. We will know all things even as also we are known, etc., so see, that's what this is talking about. God has predestinated us, here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, unto the adoption of children by himself. But this predestination doesn't mean that our free will has been taken away. It means that God, through his foreknowledge, saw those who by their own free will would accept Jesus and make him their Lord and for those who have chosen to do that of their own free will, he didn't interrupt, he didn't violate our will, but for those who chose Jesus, then he has predestinated that someday, if no other time, when he returns, we are going to receive a glorified body. We will be complete. We will be like Jesus 100%. Boy, and that is encouraging. And I tell you, it, it, it excites me and it makes me want to not wait until heaven. Praise God, we can begin to experience that now. We do not have to wait until glory to see the power of God manifest in our life. So he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. And boy, there's so much, again, that could be said here. We could spend a lot of time talking about what adoption is and what that means, but basically it just means that we are heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with him. Romans chapter 8 Verse 17 and 18, talk about that. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus has, we have through Jesus, because we are in him, and he is in us. That's offensive to some people. They like to look at us as nothing, and look at God as everything. Well, if you're talking about only the physical realm, I would agree with that 100%. But when you encompass our born-again spirit... Our born-again spirit is a joint heir with the Lord Jesus. Whatever is true of Jesus is also true of me and my born-again spirit. See, this, this is what Paul is praying here, and this is what he's trying to get us to open up to, is to recognize the degree of the blessing of God that has been placed upon us. Boy, if we could understand this, if we could understand what these words are saying, what God has done for us, I guarantee you it would change us. It would change your attitude. Well, you are not an accident looking for a place to happen. You are the power of God. You are the blessing of God. You are a person walking around carrying Jesus on the inside of you. You've got the miracle that other people need. If you could ever begin to see yourself that way, it would transform your life. In verse 6, he says that all of this is done. Well, let me back up. In the last part of the fifth verse, he he talks about we've been predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Boy, this is something that really excites me, is that we're talking about these wonderful things that God has done, how he's chosen us, how he's given us everything in Christ. It's already a done deal. He hath, past tense, blessed us. These things are wonderful. But you know... Sometimes people look at things and they think that God has redeemed mankind out of a sense of debt or obligation. In other words, God is creator, so he's responsible for us. And God, out of pity, out of a sense of justice, felt like he had to do something. And so some people, some people have accepted salvation as kind of God just, you know, saving us because he had to. Because there was a duty, responsibility, debt on his part, obligation but they miss the love that's involved in it. They miss the pleasure of God. This right here is saying that God did these things not out of sense of duty, debt, obligation, any of those things. He did it because of His great love for us. It's God's pleasure for you to prosper. You know, when it comes to prosperity, financial prosperity, it says in Psalms chapter 35, verse 27, it says, Let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of His servant. If you're in need of a financial miracle right now, you don't have to just go to God and say oh god i I believe I've got a covenant with you, and you you've got to do this. It's like you're placing a demand on him and and make it some impersonal thing. That's not the way that you really receive finances. The way you need to do it is to go and say, "Father, I thank you according to psalms thirty five twenty seven you have pleasure." in the prosperity of a servant. According to these scriptures right here in Ephesians chapter 1, Father, you've done all of these things because it's the good pleasure of your will. Father, you're pleased when I prosper. It says in 3 John verse 2, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. That's God's will for you. God longs to see you prosper physically, financially, emotionally. If you could ever take it out of the generic just debt obligation type of thing, relationship with God. And if you could personalize it and begin to recognize it, God loves you personally. God not only loves you, which again, love is defined in a thousand different ways, but some people love can mean things less than what God intended it to mean. But he not only loves you, he likes you. God is pleased with you. It goes on to say, right here in the 6th verse, it says to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 5 talks about it's his good pleasure of his will to do all of these things. Verse 6 says that you have been made accepted in the beloved. Man, God has not just tolerated you. He has accepted you. He hasn't just, you know, redeemed you from hell, but keeps you at arm's length. No, he has embraced you and drawn you close unto himself. Boy, these verses are saying much more than what most of us just on the surface pick out of them. I encourage you to really take this and let God speak to you that God loves you. It's his good pleasure. It's his good pleasure to see you manifest your full inheritance, predestinated you unto the adoption of children. He's wanting you. He's pulling for you. He's rooting for you to be victorious. Boy, if you could ever get that kind of attitude and that kind of concept, I tell you, the encouragement, the excitement, the boldness that it would give you to recognize that God is on your side. God is for you. He is not against you. He has accepted you. He doesn't just tolerate you. God loves you infinitely. If you can ever get hold of that, I can guarantee you it will change your life. Many of you have heard before, but I was born again when I was eight years old. And I accepted salvation. And I believed that I was saved. And I, I walked with the Lord. And I sought God to the best of my ability. But when I was 18 years old, I had an experience where God just tangibly, physically, poured out His love on my life in such a way that for four and a half months, I was overwhelmed with the knowledge of how much God loved me. I mean, it just radically, radically changed my life. And I can promise you that there was a difference. Before that time, I said, yes, God loves me. And I believed it to a degree. But it, in retrospect, it was actually like more, more like God has tolerated me. God has saved me from hell, but I didn't really believe that I had been saved into the presence and the power and the joy and the relationship of God. It was kind of like I was saved from hell, but I wasn't really entering into these blessings in heavenly places. And I just know in my heart that there's a large number of people listening to this tape who that really is your situation. You don't doubt that that Jesus loved you enough to save you from hell. But do you really believe that he loves you enough that it's his good pleasure to see you prosper? It's his good pleasure to see you walk in an inheritance so that you can partake of things the same way that Jesus did. Do you really believe that you've been accepted, not just tolerated, not just redeemed from punishment and destruction, but you have actually been accepted, embraced, brought into the inner circle of God? If you could believe that. If you can receive that, I can guarantee you to change your life. It changed mine. I've seen the same thing happen in the lives of other people. Paul here is saying some wonderful things that, again, we're rushing through this. You may not think so, but there is just so much here that he's saying this is powerful. And all of this is done to the praise of the glory of his grace. Man, there is nothing that we can credit this to as far as our effort our actions. It's not based on our holiness. God doesn't love me and accept me because I'm such a lovely person. He loves me because God is love. It's to the praise of the glory of His grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor, not to the praise of the glory of how great I am. I tell you, if you are trying to relate to God on the basis of your own goodness, you will never experience this acceptance. You'll never experience this pleasure of the lord because you will never let god love you like that you'll never feel worthy of it because you in yourself aren't worthy of it you just have to accept it as a gift it has to be all according to his grace all of the praise all of the glory has to go to god's grace not to your goodness if you can just humble yourself and receive this as a gift don't try and understand it don't try and rationalize it look in the mirror and say god how could you really love me i don't love me I don't like the way I look, etc. Well, see, God isn't looking on the outward appearance. First Samuel sixteen seven says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God isn't looking at your flesh. He doesn't see you the way you see yourself. God sees you in your spirit, in your born-again person. And that born-again self is radically different than most of us have ever seen or thought of. Boy, if you need to, go back to my teaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Take out that old Life for Today tape and listen to that, talking about how you're born again. I've got a tape entitled Identity in Christ. It's the third tape in a series on emotions, harnessing your emotions. But the title of the third tape in that series is Identity in Christ, and it talks about this. And you need to go back and renew your mind and begin to start recognizing Who you are in Christ and recognize that it's only because of what He's done in your life. It's not based on your external person, it's based on His goodness and grace that was extended towards you, and you've been accepted. It's His good pleasure to bless you. Boy, these things are powerful. They excite me. In verse 7, He says, In whom? Talking about in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Here again, it's talking about this is not according to your merit. You weren't forgiven because you were so good that God says, well, I've got to accept them. It all goes back to the riches of his grace, not your goodness. So we have redemption through his blood. We could spend hours on each one of these things. I need to move on, but... It just means, and it goes on and explains what he's talking about. When it says we have redemption through his blood, then it says, comma, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means that our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been blotted out. They've been removed. Psalms 103 says they are removed as far as the east is from the west. God will not remember our sins. I've heard people say before that God cast our sins into the sea of forgetfulness and then hung up a sign that says no fishing. Man, they're removed from us. Your sin, you know, when I was brought up in the church that I grew up in, they used to teach that your life was kind of like a board, a 2 before a piece of lumber. And sins were like nails hammered into that board. And when Jesus came along, he pulled out the nails. He removed the sin, but you've still got all of the scars of this sin. In other words, they were saying, yes, you're forgiven, but boy, your life is scarred, you're You're a wreck because of this sin and things like that. Actually, I believe that's not a very good analogy. It's more like, see, if your life is like a board and you got all of these sins and your nails nailed into you, it's like God comes along and takes away the board with the nails and throws them away and gives you a brand new board that's holy and pure. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's not so. Boy, I've still got problems in my life but because of my sin. Well, you do in your physical outer body and in your mental mind. But in your spirit, you were given a brand new spirit that has no sin. It has no impurity in it. Your spirit is holy and pure. And again, I refer you back to those previous tapes that I just mentioned. That's I've already gone into detail and described that. I won't do it again. But that's what redemption is. You know, this is just enumerating on these blessings that Paul began to talk about in the third verse. And he's just enumerating on what some of them are. These are awesome things. You know, if you didn't have any financial prosperity, if you were so poor that, man, you're just struggling and there's nothing positive in your existence, if you're sick in your body, if every relationship you've got has gone bad... Regardless of how bad your physical circumstances are, if you could just close your eyes, take the truths that we're talking about right here, and let God just give you revelation of what it means. Start thinking about the fact that, man, you're so loved of God. He chose you before the foundation of the world, set his affection and love upon you. He's made you holy and without blame before him. He has predestinated you. Because you've accepted Jesus unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. It will happen. It's going to happen partially here as much as you can believe and receive. But it will happen sooner or later. It's going to happen. You've got God's guarantee on it. It's been predestinated. And that's his good pleasure. It's God's good pleasure to see his will, his kingdom come in your life here. And he has made you accepted. He's embraced you. He didn't just tolerate you. He's accepted you. And then you have been forgiven of all sins. Man, you have redemption. Just begin to think about these things. You know what he would do? If everything in your physical life is negative, you would still have reason to rejoice and glory in God because of these great spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I tell you, these scriptures right here are a tremendous antidote for the negative things that we experience every day, for the criticism and the condemnation that the devil throws at us. You need to go through these scriptures and just remind yourself of what you have in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, he says that we're in, talking about the riches of his grace, through grace he has abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence. This is a very powerful statement. Basically, what he's saying here is that this is just God didn't leave us in the dark. Part of the blessing that God has given us is that he's given us revelation of the mysteries of God. That's what it goes on to say in the next verse. But here in the 8th verse, it's talking about that we have wisdom and prudence. That means that he has imparted unto us knowledge, understanding, the ability to walk in the wisdom of God. I've got a tape on this entitled, The Faith of God, that talks about how we already have things in Christ. And then I've got other tapes entitled, Remembering Scripture, Revelation, Knowledge, things like that, that go into part of the fact is that we've already got the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 First John chapter 2, verse 20, we have an unction from the Holy One and we know all things. You've already got this wisdom, this understanding, prudence is already on the inside of you. And we, therefore, can understand the things of God. I tell you, I meet so many people today who are frustrated because they know that God has more for them than what they're experiencing, but they just feel like a complete dullard you know, retarded in the ability to appropriate it and they just somehow or another feel like I can't understand and think of the things of God. It just it doesn't come to me. I can't understand these things. Well, this scripture here is saying just the opposite, that God hath. See, this is past tense, just the same as up in the third verse where it says he hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Here it says he hath abounded. The word abound means that, man, there isn't just a tiny bit of this wisdom and prudence, but God has dumped an abundance of it upon you you do have the wisdom and the prudence the mind of christ an unction from the holy one so that you can know all things there is no lack of god imparting understanding and revelation to us the only lack is our perceiving of it and that comes because we are occupied with other things if you get occupied with the mundane things of this world if you just feel yourself with the news of this world, the entertainment of this world, the associations of this world, it's going to make you spiritually retarded. It'll take away your ability to perceive. I've got a three-tape series on the hardness of heart that talks about that and about how you can soften your heart and get your ability to perceive sharpened so that you can receive the things of God. But God has given us this ability. It is not because God didn't equip us. It's because we are hardening our heart, deadening ourselves, under the perception that God has placed on the inside of us. In verse 9, what is this perception for? It's so that we can understand the mysteries of His will. It says, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. You know, Paul here begins to start talking about a mystery. In the third chapter, he talks about this again. But a mystery just means something that has not previously been revealed. It's something that's not commonly understood. It's like a riddle, a question, something that people don't know. Well, at one time, the things that God had for us were a mystery because it was just so far beyond our way of thinking and doing things. Like in the Old Testament days, who could have understood and really conceived and have grasped that God himself would become what we are so that we could become what he is. I mean, that's not the way that we would have chosen to have done things. And yet that's the way God chose to do things. He prophesied that in the Old Testament, but it was hard to get hold of, so therefore it was like a mystery. In the New Testament, now that it's a reality and that we have seen the love that Jesus has brought to the world, then these things are no longer a mystery. They're now revealed. It still takes the supernatural power of God to bring full revelation of this into a person's life because this is just still a miraculous thing that God Almighty would literally divest himself of his glory and power and come down here and suffer rejection by his own creation to be able to reconcile us unto God. It's still an amazing thing. And so, for those who are not born again... It still remains a mystery. They just can't understand it. And to those who are born again, who aren't drawing on this wisdom and prudence, there still is a mystery. In other words, as it says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So a natural man, and that's not talking about just a lost man, it's talking about lost or saved who is operating out of their own ability, just trying to understand with their head instead of understanding with their heart. A person like that cannot really perceive the great truths of God because God's Word is written to your heart. It's a spiritual, emotional book that is written to the very heart and the core of man. It makes perfect spiritual sense, but it really needs to be conceived Are received, perceived by your heart. And so he's saying here that for those who aren't listening with their heart, who aren't letting God impart things unto them, well then these things are mysteries. But if we are born again, part of the blessings that God has given us is that he's abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence, and he's made known unto us the mystery of his will. He's given us his direction for our lives. There's no reason for us to be in the dark. Over in Ephesians chapter 5, we'll deal with this later, but it says, Be not ignorant, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. There's no reason for us to go around in the dark. There's no reason for us to be without guidance and leadership. It is God's will for us to know and to be led by Him. He's given us wisdom and prudence so that we can understand these mysteries. It just takes a little bit of effort on our part. It takes us seeking God. A person who says, Well, I've asked God and it didn't work for me. Well, over in Jeremiah chapter 29, it says that you shall seek me and you shall find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. It's not just, you know, ask the Lord when you get your back up against the wall, when troubles come your way. But if you truly seek God with all of your heart in the good times and in the bad times, if you don't do it for just five minutes, but you just make a lifestyle out of seeking God, I can promise you, you will find him when you search for him with all of your heart. It is God's will to give you wisdom and direction and and leadership. That's His good pleasure again. In verse nine, it says, "According to His good pleasure, which He has purposed in Himself." It's God's good pleasure to guide you. You don't have to. You don't have to beg God. You don't have to plead with Him. You don't have to coerce God into blessing you and guiding you and showing you things. God wants to bless you, reveal Himself to you, move in your life more than you want Him to. It's not God's fault. It's our fault for not seeking Him, for being totally dominated and occupied by the world. I tell you, the clutter of the world, the unbelief, the criticism, the doubt, the stress, the strife, all of these things, it just hinders us hearing the voice of God. And sometimes it takes a while for us to unplug and to purify ourselves. It may take an hour or two or a day or a week for you to flush out some of the junk that is so contrary to the still, small voice of God that you can't hear. It's just, it's too loud. We need to go on a fast from some of the things of the world. But I can promise you that just like these scriptures are describing, God has given us everything, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He's given us everything that it takes. We don't need to plead with God and coerce Him. What we need to do is unplug from the world, deny that flesh so that what God has already given us can surface and that we can draw out this life of God. In verse 10, it says that in the dispensation, here is part of His mystery and the good pleasure of His will, and it's describing it, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So he's beginning to describe what some of these mysteries, some of the things that he's planned since the beginning of the world, what are some of these things? Well, one of them is here that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, this is talking about in the end of the world system. You know, I've got a footnote that I wrote uh, talking about Phineas Dake. In his Bible, he categorized the dispensations of God into seven main dispensations And according to his reckoning, which some of this is arbitrary, the Scripture does talk about dispensations, and we can see it, but he's listed seven of them. According to his calculations, we're in the sixth dispensation, which is the church age or the age of grace. The seventh dispensation would be the millennial reign when the Lord comes back to the earth and establishes a physical kingdom, and for 1,000 years Satan will be bound, and the Lord will rule physically as a physical government here on the earth. And then after that, there will begin eternity where we live forever in the new Jerusalem. And so I believe he's talking about that this dispensation of the fullness of times would be talking about at the uh, return of the Lord, this millennial kingdom, the end of this church age, during that period of time, he will gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. You know, there is a physical world. There is a spiritual world. In the same way as there are physical people and physical bodies, there are spiritual beings, angels, cherubims, the four living creatures around the throne. There are demonic powers, etc. Well, at the end of the age, the fullness of times here, the demonic realm is all going to be cast into the lake of fire, and he is going to literally, heaven is going to move to earth. You know, sometimes we talk about living forever in heaven. Actually, heaven is a place that exists right now during this dispensation, during this time. But the book of Revelation teaches us that when uh, eternity begins, after this thousand-year reign and after the devil and his angels and all of the people that serve the devil are cast into the lake of fire, that the new Jerusalem is going to descend to the earth. And there will be a new earth that is renovated by fire so that all impurity is gone, all imperfection is gone, everything will be perfect and complete. And we are going to have a new Jerusalem here on the earth, It'll be 1,200 miles long, 1,200 miles wide, and 1,200 miles high. We will live there with the Lord. There will be angels there. God will establish one throne where heaven and earth will be ruled over from one place. Everything will come together in Christ. And God is going to reconcile heaven and earth to each other so that there won't be the kingdom of God in heaven and then the kingdom of God on earth. But it'll all be one thing. It's talking about a perfection, about a completion of everything being brought together in Christ. And this is part of the mystery of his will. And again, I'm running out of time. I'm going to have to close on this tape. But I'll close this tape by saying in Matthew chapter 6, during what we call the Lord's Prayer, it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right now, there is the throne of God in heaven. And in heaven, things are operating perfectly. They're operating as God would have them to be. On earth, they are not totally the way God would have them to be. But we can pray that they will be. And to the degree that we can release our faith, we can see God's kingdom come to pass here on the earth as it is in heaven. We can see healing, deliverance, joy, peace, salvation manifest here on the earth to the degree that we will appropriate it. Someday, in the end times, the fullness of times, we're going to see it done automatically. We're going to see nothing but the will of God done here. But at this time, we have to pray and say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I tell you, these are just powerful scriptures, what Paul is saying here. And I encourage you to take this and study it on your own. Pray about it and let this become a reality to you. Begin to start recognizing the spiritual realm, the spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places in Christ. And I promise you, it will change your life. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.